is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this podcast, we delve behind the scenes at Fines Restoration. Richard West gives us an insight into how drivers are kept fit and healthy. Plus, I conclude my chat with Jaguar publisher, Philip Porter. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're well and managing to keep your Jaguars on the road this summer, despite what we're faced with. Lots of really interesting stuff coming up on the podcast for this week. Once I've stopped, that is, rummaging through my classifieds in the Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and uh, focus on the job in hand. Uh, do you do that as well? Start from the back of the magazine and work your way forward? I read all magazines back to front now. Anyway, talking of the magazine, if you haven't got your copy yet of the Jaguar Enthusiast magazine, that's probably because you're not yet a member of the club. What are you doing? The magazine is free to all members of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and is 130 pages packed full of Jaguar excellence. So get your membership sorted via jcpodcast.com. Just click the Join Now button on the top right-hand corner. Follow the steps and your magazine will be winging its way to you shortly. Also, we're looking for volunteers to help pilot a new member's benefit scheme, and it's worth quite a lot of money potentially, especially if you do a lot of driving. We need a pool of early adopters to try out the system, basically. Try using the card, the sign-up process, that kind of stuff. Testers, if you will. And you'll get to save money very early on before we roll it out to the wider Jaguar Enthusiast Club membership with your help. If you fancy lending a hand, saving a bit of money on the side, send us your name, email address and telephone number and simply state that you'd like to volunteer for money off by filling out the contact form at jcpodcast.com. There's 20 places available, so the first 20 people to get in touch will get their chance. And you can fill out the contact form very easily. Just go to jcpodcast.com. You'll see the menu button for contact along the top there, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. You must be a Jaguar Enthusiast Club fully paid up member, though. Now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we're going to introduce you to a brand new club partner. We're very, very proud to welcome on board Fines Restoration. They are based in the beautiful and stunning Cotswolds, uh, just between Lechlade and Burford, if you know your Cotswolds, uh, a little place called Broughton Pogs. Uh, we'll find out a little bit more on the company with David, who's on the line now. Hi, David. Hi. Great to have Fines Restoration on board with the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. You're no stranger to the club because, of course, most people would have seen you first time out at Castle Coombe at our track day there. And if you go and have a look on the Fines Restoration website, you'll see that they were founded in 1976 by a nuclear physicist. David, tell us more. So you're talking about the legendary uh, Will Fines. He's saw a niche in the marketplace where people wanted uh, Derby Bentleys in particular uh, restored, um, starting really on the, the running gear. Um, and he delved deeply into being the one-man band, restoring the rear axles, um, quickly found that uh, not only did the Derby Bentleys, but the small horsepower rolls were also suffered from the same problems um, and vastly... Uh, outgrew his small uh, workshop in Clanfield Restorations um, by getting into parts manufacturers uh, of uh, pre-war rolls and Bentley parts. Promptly in 2011 decided that actually they need bigger premises, which is why we've uh, moved to Broughton Pogs, which is where it resides now. 
including in that we've uh, we've looked at the diversity for other marks and we feel that there's a great following for Jaguar Jaguar enthusiasts most definitely enthusiastic about supporting their brand so they've been very good with supporting us I have a customer a couple of customers that have got e-types and we've we've had experience with e-types XK120s uh, XK150 and we picked up uh, uh, E-Type at Castle Coombe, which uh, unfortunately found its limits on adhesion going around the track on that day. The car is still here, and uh, it's in its final stages of uh, being repaired, ready for your track day again, um, of which he won't, probably won't blame the tyres, but probably blame his driving. Well, this is a good thing, isn't it? You know, we do encourage jaguar fans to use their cars and enjoy them and get the most out of the car that they've put so much effort and money and uh, and whatever else into into owning and the good news is that people like you are there to make sure that these cars are restored and preserved for future years how when you look back at the sort of customers that are coming through your doors in 1976 and comparing that to the sort of business you're doing now how do you think the customer profiles changed over those years so the, the Rolls and Bentley customer profile hasn't changed a huge amount. And they've, um, unfortunately, the demographics have sort of gone with the, the vehicles. Uh, and they are a very high cost car to maintain, um, and which is, which is generating it to become a narrow market that we're, we're in, which is why we've, we've had to take stock and look at the, the alternate marks as well as post-war Rolls and Bentley. Now, the only downside to those is that the values of the cars haven't necessarily gone with the cost of repair. Um, uh, but uh, whereas the likes of uh, the classic market has certainly gone, the, the, the market values have gone through the roof compared to the, what the car was originally. Um, I'd say they've had a, a bigger spike and Rolls Royce and Bentley have had a gradual growth and there's no question about classic cars they need to be used you have been responsible for some fantastic restorations over the years vehicles that you've restored for uh, customers have gone on to win salon privé and even a couple at pebble beach over in america there uh, so tell us about some of your most memorable restorations through the years yeah there was the i mean the restoration that you're talking about that what was award-winning was uh, a, a very um nice uh, Rolls-Royce that we, we did preserve. Um, we, it was towed out of a lake, basically, where the, the owner was a little bit enthusiastic at lunch and uh, it ended up in the lake and it spent some time in there. Um, but in terms of, uh, from my point of view, the restorations that I've seen here is, uh, we've got the Duke of Kent's 1934 Duke of Kent honeymoon car here, which is currently undergoing a concourse restoration. Um, that's, that's ongoing as we speak and uh, with concourse it's very much a case of don't ask how much it it really is as per the drawing of rolls royce and and i've also got uh, which will come out um, in a not too distant future for to its launch to the owner a beautiful bugatti t57 atlantic here which is also having a, a concourse restoration uh, but aside of those we've 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 got uh, you know, derby benley's um, Mercedes, Pullmans, Pagodas, they're all having very nice restorations here. And, uh, and that's, that's what I'm seeing myself, having been with the company for the last two years. 
If I was to arrive at your fines restoration premises this afternoon, what would I see when I arrive? How many people work there? What are the facilities like? Describe it to us. So you would arrive at a, a seven acre site, which uh, is tree and grass lined, which is quite a, quite a nice uh, location. Um, you'll be greeted at our reception area where um, we would then take you down to the workshop. And the workshop has got um, 22 members of staff in there currently. Um, the wow factor will start at the front door because there is, it's probably the largest, largest collection of pre-war rolls and Bentleys that you would see aside of a show. Uh, there's around about 15 in the main workshop with a further 32 various cars and uh, formats down in the, in the store, which is beyond our main workshop. There's a, Tembay mechanics area. Um, there's a three coach works and uh, we've got refinishing on one side. We've got uh, coach works on the other side. We have our in-house carpenter who um, I think he's genius with what he can do with woodwork and the quality of it is just phenomenal. Um, we then have our own uh, CNC machine shop. Uh, which is quite unique for a restoration company uh, where we manufacture 93% of our own parts. Um, but we're also doing parts for alternate marks. We've just done, because you can't buy cam bearings for an Aston Martin DB, DB5. So we've just manufactured the cam bearings for a private individual. Um, and we're also manufacturing cam bearings for a uh, Bugatti engine currently recent acquisitions have been that we've purchased Rob Walker Engineering as well, which does multi-marks of uh, uh, engine recon. And I know all of your guys, they're craftsmen and they have a passion for historic vehicles, just like the owners of those historic vehicles do. So if there was a Jaguar that you would love to have in the workshop to do restoration work on, what do you think it would be? I'm a great fan of the XK, uh, the one, the 120s, the 150s. E-types are great. I've got, I've, got, I've got three customers with E-types that come to us, one of them being Roaster. We've restored a, the, certainly the, the Series 1.5s are the most popular that we seem to see. It seemed to be a popular choice on the outside. For me, uh, the XK is uh, uh, the car that I would uh, aspire to. Well, if anyone has an XK needing some love and attention from some uh, really skilled craftsmen, then Finds Restoration is the place to take it. They're desperate to work on it, you see. They need it. Yeah. Uh, it'd be lovely to uh, hear another story of uh, someone who's come through from the podcast to uh, take their car uh, to go and visit you. And, um, of course, you do other services as well. I noticed just browsing through your website, which is finds.co.uk. We'll put a link to that website in the description part on the uh, podcast page. Uh, but uh, you do storage and part supply and all sorts of other things as well that sort of surround what the needs are for the historic vehicle owner, don't you? Yeah, we do. We've got, um, and also we've got the car sales section as well, um, which has seen substantial growth, which was kind of what we thought would happen out, out coming out of COVID that some people would uh, choose to sell their cars. Um, storage facility, we, we have, uh, we can also offer transport finds.co.uk a brand new Jaguar Enthusiast Club partner and uh, no doubt we can meet all of you guys David uh, at uh, the Summer Jaguar Festival at Blenheim next year if not before absolutely we look forward to seeing you Memories of Motorsport Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast 
On this week's Richard Remembers, we're looking at a part of motorsport that many people probably haven't considered. And it's quite a hot topic at the moment, of course, as we're all dealing with what the world is throwing at us. And it is, of course, mental health and the general well-being of sportsmen. And uh, Richard, this is something that has grown in importance in the sport over the last couple of decades, isn't it? It is, Wayne. And in fact, it goes back further than that. My, my first uh, experience of working with a very talented individual was way, way back in 1984, a gentleman by the name of Willie Dungle. Um, Willie was the um, holistic physician that assisted Nicky Lauda in his comeback from that terrible fiery accident that he suffered at the Nürburgring. And he became principally Nicky's physician when I joined the team in 84. But he also looked after Alan Prost and looked after the whole team. And there were times in, you know, all those decades ago, you would look and you'd see the various meals that Willie would produce and the type of head massage and uh, foot massages that he would do on the drivers after each session. And people were skeptical, but I never was because I, I saw what he was able to achieve with the drivers and the balance of psychological um, focus, the ability to eat easily digestible foods, the massages and the treatments that he provided played a very, very important part in that success. And it's grown and grown over the years. I mean, in the case of the McLaren team, they had the services of an incredible guy, um, Aki Hintzer, who sadly uh, passed away, um, I believe, from cancer a number of years ago. But the Hintzer, I think it's the Hintzer Foundation, the Hintzer School, still continues. And not only did the drivers receive Aki's skills in terms of fitness programs and dietary programs and mental wellness but it extended right the way through the entire race team so he would work with the pit crew he would work with all the mechanics uh, he would help them overcome jet lag at flyaway races or back-to-back -back races where they were on different continents in two weekends and in fact going back Willie Dungle's daughter Andrea she was an amazing position she also uh, carried on when Willie left off and when you look today, the drivers are incredibly fit. I was looking at a picture the other day of Keke Rosberg at Silverstone, I think in 85, you know, stubbing out his cigarette before he did his qualifying lap. I mean, that would be absolutely horror today if you saw a driver doing that. Because you'll notice today also the drivers tend to be a lot leaner and a lot slimmer. If you look back at drivers like uh, the American Eddie Cheever, uh, you look at uh, Derek Warwick, who was quite a stocky guy, and indeed Nigel Mansell, who's a, who was a big guy, when he was in a racing car, nobody's really come close to that apart from Mark Webber in recent years in terms of his height. And all of those elements, when you think about the mental attitude of being able to qualify, being able to race uh, in sports car racing, massively important. Martin Brundle and the team in Daytona and Le Mans, we had the services of an Irish physician who, uh, who was an incredible guy and would look after all of our diets, not just the drivers themselves, but the race team as well. And I think it's one of those things that people never see and never hear about, but it plays an incredibly important part in teams being competitive. In endurance racing, particularly important because, of course, you are helping the driver to not only deal with the focus that they require during periods of time when they're very tired but also mm. the physical rigors of especially in the modern sport of the actual g-forces they're pulling in corners oh absolutely i mean these these cars i mean um the formula one cars when they 
were sort of at that time the heyday the fw14 14 bfw15 williams um you know they were pulling four and a half g lateral in the corners and they were pulling almost 5g under braking and if you look now at the the current day lmp1 cars you know uh, the, the the amount of grip that those cars develop is absolutely phenomenal and of course if you look carefully and i don't know whether people really do this but look at some of these incredibly fit young drivers that are on the grid today Although they're very slim and very trim, they have incredibly pronounced thick necks and shoulder muscles. And of course, you know, if you're pulling four, four and a half G in a corner, your head is weighing an enormous amount of weight. So one of the training regimes, uh, a guy called Gerard Gray, who looked after Jackie Stewart for almost 15 years until recently, Jackie Stewart's fitness. Gerard worked with me when I managed Heinz Harold Prenson when he was a Williams driver and a great deal of the effort in the gymnasium was a device that it was a very strange looking thing. It looked like a giant um, pair of headphones that you would put on your head. But in actual fact, it was spring loaded. And I understand many drivers, you know, of that era and even today, they push their heads from side to side and they build up these enormous strong neck muscles to enable them to cope with the G that they develop in the corners because racing, I don't think anybody really realizes, you know, you get in a high performance sports car and even if you go on a track guy and you drive it really hard, you're probably pulling half a G in the corners laterally. I'm talking four and a half G. That's the stuff the red arrows do, but the driver's doing it for up to two hours or in a sports car race. Like Le Mans, they do a triple stint. That can be three and a half hours, you know. So amazing fitness required. And, of course, behind that fitness requirement are these men and women that do the most remarkable job and really the unsung heroes of keeping drivers fit and healthy. Of increasing importance as well as physical health has been looking after the mental health of drivers and this has become particularly important in Formula One in recent years where they are being helped and trained by uh, mental health professionals to keep focused on being a driver amongst the noise and the media that they have to deal with and all of the sponsorship commitments and the the sort of the outside world of being a celebrity and that's become increasingly more important hasn't it very much so i mean um a dreadful plug here i shouldn't do it but in, in the book that i wrote with my two co-authors performance at the limit one of the things one of the chapters in that book was frank williams comment when you know he was riding high with the team and I asked him the most important thing, and he said, focus, focus, focus. And I, I remember a time when I asked him for some money to spend on a project. And before he would allow me to spend it, you know, he said to me, can you explain to me how this will make the car go faster? And, and that almost laser-like focus on the job takes a great deal of mental attitude, or aptitude, I should say. And therefore, Martin Brundle commented on this also not so long ago in an interview where he said the modern-day driver has to really take into account a multitude of tasks during the course of the weekend. He has to be brave when it comes to qualifying. He has to be technical when it comes to working with his team. He has to be PR savvy when it comes to working with investors and sponsors. And he also has to have enough uh, control over his own emotions to be able to actually sit with the people that help him and focus on the task ahead. So... Being a driver today, whether you're in a Grand Prix car, a BTC car, or a world sports car, it really honestly makes no difference because the requirement for focus is absolute. And at that point, you do need somebody to help you through that. And Jackie Stewart made a very relevant comment a couple of years ago when he said, if you look at the top golf stars, you look at the top tennis stars, you look at the top basketball stars, they all have mental coaches.
and there should be more of them in Formula One and there should be more of them in motorsport and thankfully more and more of them are now coming through and assisting drivers in what frankly is a very very difficult task. Well, another fascinating insight from your lifetime in motorsport. And he might not have a big team around him to help him mentally prepare for the forthcoming round of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Racing Championship this weekend at Thruxton. Uh, but Tom is still taking his preparation seriously, getting ready for the first round next. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge with the Jaguar model experts. The Jaguar Enthusiast Club Race Championship gets underway this weekend with the first round this season at Thruxton. So, Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar has been busy preparing his X300 shape XJR6 race car ready for getting back out on track. He takes us along for the ride while he does his last minute preparations. So we're now back in a workshop and uh, we thought this would be a good chance to talk you through some of the race preparations that we had carry out before. So we're going to um, corner weight the car, we're going to put it up on the geometry and just go through the full process that we would do before a, a race meeting. So first things first, we had a track day on Monday just gone with the car. It's the first time I've driven it actually with, with the complete new setup. So the car itself felt really different to what it did last season. Um, and it was mainly positive, but um, I haven't driven a car obviously for quite a long time with, with what's been going on with COVID. So it took me a little bit of time to get back into it. So it was kind of a, quite a relaxed day where we could just go out, set the car up, check it over and, and try a couple of different setups and and as i explained previously we've got a, a far better um, ecu and management system on the car now so we could we could really see exactly what the car was doing and and it looks like all of the improvements we have done to the oil system so far are, are doing exactly what we'd like them to do um, all of the oil pressure seems stable and it didn't seem to be like we were getting any surge at coon there's a couple of tight chicanes there and there was no kind of spike on on that so that, that's really good news so we've now got the car back at our place and we're going to um, get it ready for Thruxton which is on Saturday we're going to do a full um, spanner check on the car go right the way through it top to bottom change all the fluid so we'll be changing the brake fluid engine oil uh, diff oils and all the transmission uh, and then we're going to corner the weight of the car. We've done quite a lot of changes to the weight distribution on the car. So when we were fabricating some of the components, we've been able to move a lot of the components around the car just to try and to get it as balanced as possible. Um, and we've also lost a little bit of weight out of the vehicle as well because we've gone away from the, the water-cooled supercharging system. We've obviously reduced a lot of water that's in the system. So we've got a different engine cooling system as well. Um, and that has actually saved us about 20 kilos. Uh, 20 kilograms in total which is which is quite which is quite a lot so we're gonna corner weight the car and try and get it as close to 50 50 split as we can um, that's the ultimate goal um, and then we're going to go on to do the geometry once this is done um, and we do change the geometry slightly depending on what circuit we're at um, but the kind of base settings do the set stay the same and I normally adjust um, a damper settings when I'm actually at the circuit but we do have a rough idea on where we need to be before we start we'll be getting to Thruxton probably for about sort of half past seven um, and we are actually first out for qualifying so we're qualifying at nine o'clock um, so yeah I'm generally really excited and it's, it'd be really great to get back out in the car and uh, yeah I think it's going to be an early night um, 
due to probably leaving it around sort of half past five, six tomorrow. So yeah, I'll keep you updated. Well, we'll find out how Tom gets on at Thruxton when he returns on the next episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Next, we return to the concluding part of my conversation with Jaguar fan and renowned publisher, Philip Porter. I have on my desk here, whilst we're talking, probably the biggest, heaviest, thickest book in my collection, (laughs) which is Jaguar E-Type, the definitive history. And if you're into E-Types, this is the Bible and certainly has become the most definitive book on every aspect of the E-Type story. That must have been one heck of a labour of love to put this book together. It's, it is huge, isn't it? Very good for weightlifting. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, that's how I promote it. Very good for weightlifting. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for your very kind comments. Um, long time ago now, mid-80s, that I devoted, yes, a lot of time to that. Uh, a lot of research. Um, I was lucky enough that um, uh, a number of people were still alive, of course, in those days. Um, and I was able to interview people like Bill Haynes um, and uh, Bob Knight, who is became a good friend of mine. We used to lunch together regularly, fascinating gentleman, and so on. So uh, I went to the States, and I went all over. I think I did something like 12 states in 14 days, um, and dear old Mike Cook over there uh, helped me with introductions, and so I went to see Bob Tullius and his crew. Um, I, uh, Joe Erdmans, now he's a fascinating gentleman and an important part of the whole Jaguar story. Delightful man who took me out for dinner and, uh, and was very, very helpful. He was uh, basically made Jaguar in the States. He, he'd run the company over there for many, many years, had a very good relationship with Lance, and um, is it really should never be forgotten in the whole Jaguar story. He was a key guy, mm-hmm. and uh, and so on. So I went to the um, the dealership um, in Hornburgs in um, L.A., and that's where uh, the gentleman who then uh, ran the company uh, came up with a wonderful quote, which um, has been stolen and used widely. <laughs> uh, when Frank Sinatra walked in and said seeing the, the, the early demonstrator I want that car and I want it now and they had to tell him no you can't it's not for sale and, and so on so uh, researched all over the place um, Bob Berry is another one who is very very helpful who had driven 960 HP to the launch in Geneva flat out an incredible drive and of course Norman Dewis uh, it's a long time ago now of course and, and Norman had just retired and uh, he um, helped me enormously um, with all sorts of uh, records and things he had and uh, testing notes and, and so on. And so I gradually pieced it all together and um, I think it took about a year of full-time work. In those days I wasn't really doing anything else. And, um, and I think it took Haynes about nearly a year to produce it. So it was uh, quite a mammoth task. Um, and we revised it much more recently for the uh, 50th anniversary, not so recent, I suppose, now. Mm. Um, and um, 
I also that for that was uh, we wrote uh, Ultimate E Type, the story of the competition cars. So um, that's another. So you put the two together, and you can they, they're ideal for weightlifting. <laughs> All you need is a bar to attach to the one book either end, and there you are. You can keep fit as well as learn perhaps the odd bit. You'll never have a door swinging open on its own ever again with these books nope. in your collection. But, You're so uh, right. That's the other point. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I'm very obliged, very much obliged to you. Also, <laughs> ideal as doorstops. You're quite right. And there is a third use, actually. I was, because I used to fly hot air balloons and airships, uh, I was at an event. It sounds a bit, uh, I'm, I'm showing off, but I was at an event in, um, in Jamaica. Uh, which I've been paid to, to go to and with my sponsored balloon and everything. And I was lying by a pool, very rare for me. And uh, I um, was talking to the uh, wife of, uh, of a good friend who was lying uh, next to me and noticed that she had uh, a particularly fat uh, softback book under her head. And she said, yes, they make ideal rest, uh, headrests, these <laughs> larger, fatter books. And I realized that actually I didn't really write books, I wrote headrests. <laughs> Well, in all seriousness, it is an absolutely brilliant and fantastically detailed story of a car that was iconic. And I guess you were fortunate in your timing because, as you mentioned, so many of those names that were crucial to getting the information that now goes into this book and sort of creates the reference on the history of the car that we have are no longer with us. And I picked up on one in particular there, Mike Cook, who was a great mentor to me when he was alive. We lost him just a couple of years ago. And he was he must have been full of fascinating stories because if he, he of course, ran the PR, not just for Jaguar, but for all of the then British Leyland marks that would be in my marketed in America. He also worked with Bob Tullius on Triumph as well, of course. Mm, um, yes. And it, it was just a, a prime moment to get all of those people and all those stories written down and recorded before we couldn't do that anymore, wasn't it? As you say, uh, I was lucky in that respect. Of course, if I'd been a bit older or whatever, then I suppose there were a few key people missing, sadly. Uh, Malcolm Sayer being one, of course, and mm. Sir William um, and I met Sir William briefly, but I wasn't, um, hadn't really started writing at anything then. Um, and and Sayer, so, uh, we've of course very sadly lost um, uh, some years before. Um, and but I managed to track down um, his daughter um, and various people, of course, who knew him and worked with him. And indeed, um, sometime later, his sister, um, and so on. So I was able to piece together more actually for the 960 HP book um, uh, more of a, a biography of uh, the great Malcolm Sayer and um, it's, I've, I've since got to know the family and so on which is, is a privilege there a lovely crowd mm -hmm. and so on but I think he was an amazing man Malcolm Sayer and deserves enormous credit Absolutely, and so many cars that you see, car designs that you see in the modern market hail back to those early dabblings into aerodynamics and what they'd learnt through creating aircraft during the Second World War. Yes, indeed. Um, absolutely. The, the, from that point of view, the war was very useful to, to Jaguar. Um, I think that particularly came out with the D-Type uh, and so on. But it's interesting, I'm, I'm just at the moment editing, just digressing, I'm editing a book extraordinary book which uh, somebody has brought to us uh, a German gentleman who found 4,000 photographs under a villa in Italy uh, and they're photographs taken by a guy who was hunting cars in the 60s and 70s 
and finding cars all over the world, a lot in South America, and their extraordinary selection of Ferraris, Maseratis, Oscars, uh, you name it, anything and everything, all sorts of extraordinary cars, um, Porsches and a few Jaguars and so on. And in doing so, I'm learning a great deal because I'm, I'm working on the captions and editing them, etc. All these obscure cars. And it's interesting to see how, how much influence Italian, I know this is perhaps an obvious statement, but Italian uh, styling did have. And uh, my theory, as, as, exposed, as, as uh, given in the uh, definitive history, is that um, the Disco Volante styling uh, that came out of Italy, uh, particularly Alfa Romeo, uh, influenced uh, Sayer, indeed, uh, somebody who uh, gave me uh, a number of, of Malcolm Sayer's photographs, a chap who took over uh, the styling department, ran the styling department, um, and, and in those uh, photographs uh, were shots of um, the old Alfa Romeo Disco Volantes open and closed. So I think they had a big influence. Um, they also, of course, if you like, Jagger did his own Disco Volante, um, which was the fascinating uh, light, light alloy car, which was built between the C-type and D-type, the sort of one step between the two, and which I, has always intrigued me and my uh, old chum, uh, John Pearson, uh, who used to race HK's, John Metal Pearson. Hmm. We've been great, great friends ever since. I bought my 140 Roadster from him in the paddock at Silverstone in 1973, and um, he's a, a fantastic enthusiast and very, very knowledgeable. It's an interesting look at British design history during the 60s, and definitely there was a fashion for yes building it in the uk and being proud that it was british but popping over to italy to get things designed if you look at other british cars of the time the tr4 went of course to michelotti to design another italian designer mg were working on concepts for the mgb at those concept cars that can still be seen at gaden in the british motor museum there by an italian and even as as early as pre-war donald healy went and bought an Alfa Romeo 8C to try and model yes. a Dolomite on, you know, so uh, it had been going on for some time at that point. So, Absolutely. yeah, an interesting part of the British motoring story. Well, of course, Porter Press International goes from strength to strength. And if you look at the list of authors and contributors you've worked with over the years, it's like a who's who in motoring, isn't it, really? Um, has it been a challenge building a publishing company in this ever digital modern world that we're in or or is there still a place for the the good old reference book amongst all of this it has been one hell of a challenge uh it's all driven by enthusiasm i have to say nothing to do with making money or anything um but it was the natural extension for me to try and make it sort of viable because one used to frankly one used to earn uh, absolute peanuts from writing all these various books. I always say I could have earned more working behind the bar of the local pub. And that's no exaggeration. It really isn't. It was a labor of love and, and again, utterly crazy, really. But to try and make it a little bit more worthwhile and to have some influence over things and, and, and this, that, and the other and pursue, continue to pursue the passion for cars and books and publishing, I, well, it coincided with getting to know Sterling Moss very well. Sterling became a patron of RHK clubs. The first one was um, was the great Ian Appleyard, who sadly didn't last very long um, before he, he very tragically died. Um, and then it was Alan Clark, 
the, the politician, uh, who was splendid, but again, he very sadly didn't last very long. When I approached Sterling, he said yes, he would do it, but he hoped he last ra- would last rather longer than the other two. <laughs> we used to have, or we do have, dinners at the House of Commons, which Sterling would always come to. He'd actually said yes, but on a non-participatory basis, and then came to every dinner that we had each year at the Commons. And I used to interview him after dinner, and we had a lot of laughs. It was fantastic. And we became great, great friends, very close. And I found he had wonderful old original scrapbooks. And I said to him, well, I think these would make great books. And he said, and I quote, I think you're crazy, but okay. And we did four together. And after the first one, Betty Hill uh, contacted me and said, well, I've got Graham's scrapbooks, Graham Hill's scrapbooks. Um, would you like to do something similar? And I said, yes, of course, because he was my hero after Sterling sadly retired. And so we did that, and for that I interviewed Murray Walker. And I then sent a copy of the Graham Hill scrapbook to Murray and said, could I persuade you, could you persuade us to do something similar? And he wrote straight back, emailed straight back, said, you've completely ruined my day. I couldn't put it down. I would love to do something similar. And that was one of the best things, if not the best, that ever happened to us, because Murray then supported us with signing sessions at all sorts of events, not for the one year that he first said he would do, which was a bonus, continued for five years. And I'm still keeping in touch with him. I'm phoning him every uh, every two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I'm delighted to say he's still on fine form. And he also became a close friend, which is very, very special, and very proud indeed, very lucky. And so the publishing side sort of developed uh, just steadily, mainly with me writing um, two or three books a year uh, and one or two other people from time to time. And then when somebody commissioned me to write a book on their one car, um, which was the lightweight prototype lightweight e-tape uh, for WPD. Um, I, I came up with the concept of doing a series uh, on individual cars uh, commissioned by the owner, and that's our great car series, and we've now just published the 14th one on a Daytona Cobra and so on. And we've, uh, we've got some, some amazing cars in there, some absolutely amazing clients and, and a fabulous team, and I, I'm very, very proud indeed to uh, have to work with such an extraordinary team of authors, editors, and designers. Uh, very proud indeed, and it's all, all credit. If, if our books are uh, respected and enjoyed, it's all credit to them, of course. But it is a very difficult business indeed, um, and that's proven by the fact that virtually everybody else has given up. They've either gone bump, sadly, or they've found an easier life. And Haynes gave up... Um, must be five or so years ago now, they gave up publishing their, their specialist books and just restricted themselves to their manuals. As a result of that, I was able to work with a guy called Mark Hughes, not to be confused with the Formula One Mark Hughes mm-hmm. in Motorsport Magazine. And Mark, our Mark, was editorial director of Haynes for 15 years, and he edits our Great Car series, our Ultimate series now, etc. And without him, I couldn't have done it without him, and our designer, who used to design our magazines, who I worked with for 22 years. He retired last Christmas, um, and they, with their expertise and professionalism and ability, allowed me to do what we had done. So it's very much a team effort. Um, and we're, we're hanging in there. Um, it's, um, it's not easy. 
especially at the moment, but uh, we're, we're hanging in there and still loving it and some very exciting books in the pipeline. Um, it's, it's a bit like a drug, really, all these things, the, the cars, everything, really, it's a, it's a drug, but um, I haven't found a cure yet, so I'm still uh, crazy and still insane. Well, if anyone ever wondered why people were into classic cars, then your series detailing the autobiographies, really, of individual cars just proves that there are so many stories and, uh, I guess, what we call human interest tales wrapped up in the cars that we love. And just like classic cars, books are tactile. They're a permanent record of history and of things past. So I really do hope that uh, you are remaining publishing for a long, long time yet to come so we can have all of these historical stories chronicled in something that we can actually touch and hold and and pass down through generations just like the cars themselves so uh, uh, best of luck for the future there and and before i let you go philip we're going to have to ask you what this exciting thing is that you've just acquired from sturgis very recently right well actually it wasn't recently it was a few years ago now but um it was an f-type um the first new car i've ever owned um the first jaguar frankly that i've really been passionate to own since the the e-type um and um i was very fortunate ian callum who's a good friend um had um invited me over to show me uh the car pre-launch and uh, from that moment i felt that i very much wanted to own one and um my wife was very supportive um and uh, and she i hasten to add works with me in the various businesses and and uh, has played a great role and uh, worked incredibly hard and um we managed to acquire uh, a quite an early car thanks to chris Sturgis being uh, a good friend and very helpful and we thought what color should we have it in well various options it was very difficult um there was a number of very nice very tempting colors but in the end we decided it had to be just like the italian job e-type red with a fawn hood so there we are that's the connection the one two sturgis cars all those years apart same color same original stable this and the other so i have that and and still have it uh, very much uh, i intend to keep it and thoroughly enjoy it absolutely love it um, in fact, we were out in it last weekend, uh, and so on. So, uh, yeah, still, still. Uh the passion is still alive well if you want to find out any more about uh, the books that uh, Philip Porter has in his back catalogue those books that are available now you can go to porterpress.co.uk or of course keep your eye on Friday Spotlight that is the weekly email from the Jaguar Enthusiast Club where very often when a new book comes out from Philip Porter we will give you a members discount code to use against it so uh, keep your eye on the Friday Spotlight or check out of course Porter Press press.co.uk uh, Philip it's been wonderful chatting about Jaguars and life I feel we could go on for the rest of today but you have books to write and masterpieces to create so uh, we'll thank you so much for coming on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast thank you very much indeed and uh, I must say you've done uh, wonderful research you know your subject very well indeed and uh, it's, it's an honour and pleasure to be interviewed by you and to be on this JEC podcast thank you very much indeed I thoroughly enjoyed it that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there 
to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic free magazine that you will get as a member of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the J's. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.